0: Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now.
1: I always see it as sort of an export from Europe into the United States. This idea that, you know what, all creative ideas just belong to everyone. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and and uh, of course, growing up for me, it was like, uh, no, no. I love this idea of intellectual property, you know? I love the idea that I dreamed it up and now I'm going to get paid for it.
2: From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and joining me today to co-host the show are Clarissa Mall and Bob Smittana. Today, we're going to be talking about the summer strikes, student loan repayments beginning again and taking a silent walk and looking for peace on TikTok. Stay with us. All right, so earlier this year, the Writers Guild of America, which represents more than 11,000 screenwriters, went on strike shortly after that in July. SAG-AFTRA, which is the Screen Actors Guild, they went on strike as well. They represent over 160,000 actors. They're demanding higher pay for streaming revenues, and they're also demanding and requesting restrictions on the use of artificial intelligence to generate content. Recently in Pitchfork, a couple of articles talked about some of the implications that are related to these strikes inside the music industry. In today's music industry, the distinctions between songwriter and musician are even blurrier than they were in the 1980s. And musicians are talking about their need to organize and to fight for their share of the profits that these other unions are fighting for as well. This comes in the midst of a number of other strikes that are taking place around the country today. To talk about this, we've invited Charlie Peacock to join us. Charlie is a musician and a record producer and a composer, someone whose music has been in a variety of television and films over the years. Charlie, welcome to The Bulletin.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
2: When we think about what's happening inside the entertainment industry with AI, with all of the sort of streaming services and the revenues that are being fought over inside these other unions, maybe let's just start by talking about your work. How does this strike affect you? And how do these issues affect musicians like yourself?
1: Well, a lot of the core issues, if we just look at the streaming issue and the AI issue, these are things that we musicians have been dealing with for actually for quite a while. And particularly streaming. I mean, streaming dismantled our industry 23, 24 years ago now that it's been rebuilding. And I really think it's right for writers and actors to jump on this now because I'm a baby boomer musician. So I lived through the time when we used to have mechanical royalties, which was a much higher royalty rate based on a single unit, like a piece of vinyl or a CD or something like that. And the streaming numbers, honestly, unless you're in the superstar realm, they just don't add up. They're not the kind of money that a family makes a living on.
2: How would you say that that compares to what's happening with like, say there's an actor or a screenwriter who's got a show on Netflix, what is it exactly that they're asking for?
1: Well, I think one of the things that we're, we're all asking for, I mean, all, all creatives are asking for, is that everything is moving towards this sort of buyout world where you do a work for hire and then that intellectual property or your imaging or any of that is owned ad infinitum. And we had previously lived under a system where we were paid residuals for appearances or like, like even me for a musician, I get SAG after checks, you know, because I was on Letterman or something. Right. Mm. You know, well, those will last forever. As long as somebody decides somewhere in the world to air these television shows that I've been on, I'm going to get paid for that for my appearance and paid for the music that appears on that. Mm. There's a big push which really, in my mind, began 20 years ago, and I, I always see it as sort of an export from Europe into the United States, this idea that, you know what, all creative ideas just belong to everyone. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and uh, of course, growing up for me, it was like, Uh, No, no. I love this idea of intellectual property. You know, Mm -hmm. I love the idea that I dreamed it up and now I'm going to get paid for it. Well, there's been such a movement to erode that whole concept. And right now, a lot of this discussion, whether we're talking about writers or we're talking about Screen Actors Guild, we're talking about musicians, it really does come down to this notion of the erosion of intellectual rights Mm -hmm. And whoever is putting down the first million dollars is the one who controls
2: everything. So then the studios, I'm sure, have a response to that.
1: Yeah, and that's their response. Their response is, you know what, when you're ready to put down your own $50 million, (laughs) right, to make this film, then you can control all these elements. Of course, then they would say like, oh, there would be a Brad Pitt would come along, right? And then Brad Pitt would have the leverage, right? Mm -hmm. Well, with AI starting to, that's the ability to strip back some of that leverage. Because if if you can take the best and the brightest ideas, right, and learning machines can bring them into the fold, right, and aggregate them with all the best from around the world and create characters, create animations, create faux rock stars, <laughs> you know, with AI music and AI personalities and all of this, you start to erode at the necessity of maybe we needed 1 million creatives, you know, that was the dancers of the world, the actors, the musicians, all of that. Well, now we're chipped that down. Now, now we're only going to need 500,000 in the whole world, right? Mm. Right, because we're going to start to do a lot of this replication through all the different technologies.
3: I just wonder if unions are the solution to this. In the 80s, 20% of American workers were part of a union, but that number has been steadily dropping, and now only 10% of American workers are part of a union. It feels a little bit like unions are my grandpa's kind of thing. Are they the solution for these kinds of problems?
1: Yes, that is... Such a wise comment. I doubt that myself. I have to wonder aloud that whether the unions really have that power. I can tell you, like uh, yesterday, I communicated with uh, someone in our leadership here with the American Federation of Musicians, and he told me, he said, the AFM will be next in line to negotiate with these same media companies that are stonewalling the writers and actors and whatever gains they are finally able to achieve will have a positive impact on our negotiations. Now I would love to believe that, right? But having lived and been a union musician my entire adult life and lived here in Nashville, I have a pretty good idea of how much power they have. And frankly, if this was a a, a gaming union, you know, or something, mm. they might have a lot more power. Music does not contribute that much financially. I mean, we get excited about a few billion dollars, but when you consider the amount of money that other entertainment mechanisms are bringing to the table, I think they have a lot more power than we do on the music side.
3: So labor relations, folks call it horizontal solidarity, where you know the Starbucks workers, they stand arm-in-arm with the auto workers, stand arm-in-arm with the actors. Do you sense that kind of solidarity right now with people in the music industry as they look at these other strikes that have happened over the course of the summer and now into the fall? Or are they kind of like, it's not my problem, it's not going to work the same for me?
1: There's a little bit of it, not my problem. I mean, the way we function here in Nashville is that I would say we always lean into what we call putting it on the card, right? Which is that we're going to do a union gig. It's going to be a union recording session. But if there is some unique, unusual opportunity where we're Not going to put it on the card. We definitely do that because we're still musicians. We're still creatives who who want to make stuff. and, And there are opportunities to come up to make things that we want to make that just don't fit into a mold. But I will tell you along those lines is that our union did send out a note of solidarity to all of us to say that, hey... You know, just so you know, we're locking arms with them. And we had over 97% of the AFM voted to uh, lock arms with them.
4: Do consumers play a role here, too? I think about, uh, I mean, it's easy to stream things. I love that, but I like to buy things. And it's even harder to buy music now, right? It's hard to buy it. Even with Apple Music, you used to be able to buy it now. They want to stream everything. And if you buy it, they make it harder for you to use, and we all like cheap music like i i can be cheap but it seems like a short term gain and a long term loss
1: yeah i mean i have fans from 40 years ago who will write me something on facebook and and they'll be just really animated with their support right cuz they're they're like I'm not going to stream on Spotify or Tidal or any of the majors, you know. I want to buy your music. It's like, so where can I get your CDs? So <laughs> then I'm like, I don't even have <laughs> CDs anymore. Yeah. You've just sent me a clue as to yeah. what is going on here, and it breaks my heart to tell them that, guys. That ship has mm-hmm. sailed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that ship has sailed. If you want to listen to my music, you got to get on one of these streaming. I've already reconciled that if I have a big song, which for me would be multi millions of plays, I'm not going to get that same commensurate paycheck that I would have gotten in the old analog
2: world. I think the question that I have then is, and I think this relates because the same thing can be said about Netflix, right? Like, we don't go to Blockbuster on Friday night anymore and pay five bucks or four bucks to rent a movie. we don't buy the, certainly don't pay $25 to buy the DVDs anymore, much less the Laser discs or VHS <laughs> cassettes, right? Exactly. Um, so I guess I'm wondering where the disconnect happens, right? Like where did the money go that people were spending on music? Is it simply that people pay their 20 bucks a month or 15 bucks a month for their streaming service and their Netflix service and all the rest of it, and the streamers are making all the money and keeping it, or has the availability of streaming sort of, so lowered the amount of money that people are even willing to spend on music and spend on entertainment and that sort of thing that, you know, cause this is one of the things that the streamers often say and, mm-hmm. and sort of advocates for the, for the producers are often saying is, well, nobody's making any money right now. None of these things are profitable.
1: And that's what they all say. And you guys also know that there's like zero transparency. Yeah. So in the music business, I mean, we used to have in a sense, zero transparency too, because 40 years ago 30 40 years ago we reported our own sales figures right directly to Billboard or Cashbox or whoever it was that was the aggregator at that time and then it got all connected to the cash registers so then there was the era in the 80s and the 90s where Tower Records would be selling tons of whatever the current hit record was and you would know that later that afternoon like in America look we sold 7300 units right yeah and here's the cities we sold it in. Well, Netflix and others like it, I mean, they're not telling us Mm. what these streams are. There's no measurement to say, like, even like one of the projects that I'm working on, which we're hoping to place with a streamer right now, we're getting a lot of really low ball rates. It's four episodes, so just the rate per episode is pretty low, but we don't know, really know how to judge that. We don't know like, yeah, most music stuff really in a week, there's only 127,000 views, right? Mm-hmm. So then it's like, okay, well, maybe that's fair if they pay us this much, but who knows? You I mean, mean they they, they, they might have 5 million views per week, yeah, but we really don't know, and they're not giving us that information. Mm. It's It's more like, hey... We're the one-stop shopper for streaming. It's either it's Amazon, us, and Hulu. And if you want to make a deal, this is the range that these deals are in.
3: So what looks more equitable? You know, the auto workers have these lists of demands and WGA has their list of demands. What looks more equitable in the music industry?
1: Well, I think most of us that have been around a while are looking for an equitable relationship with the streamers and the major entertainment corporations that is commensurate with what we have built our lives Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. So the economics of what our families have been built on. And we know, like, for example, I've done a lot of artist development. So I know that If I develop an artist today from the ground up, let's say they're a 20-year-old, right? And we're going to spend five years of investment on their music career. I don't know any longer that I'm going to be able to get them to the place where they have the streaming equivalent of a gold and platinum Mm -hmm. record, which was sort of the marker for us back throughout my lifetime. Is if we were making gold and platinum records, then the economics of that was enough to support a family and to have an assistant and a manager and an accountant and all the various things that you needed to make life work as a working artist. That's really all anybody's looking for. I mean, I think that's what Hollywood's looking for. We're looking for fairness. I don't think anybody's out there trying to get something more than what it takes to live and raise a family and have a little bit more and dream dreams and be able to fund them. If there's some anger in it, it's like, hey, buddy, you know, (laughs) whoever it is, you know, Big Entertainment Corporation A, you know, you're not the only people who dream dreams, Mm -hmm. right? And so we need a wealth mechanism in order for us to dream our dreams as well.
4: I mean, it seems like the whole world has gone to the what is it, the 10% or 3% model, right? So everyone in the church world, everyone goes to a big church. In the music business world, it's either you're Taylor Swift or you're no one. And it just seems like all these, either in art or in companies or in churches, we've all moved to a model where a few people get everything and there's not a sort of a middle class of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I would say for us from the music standpoint, it's kind of a gutting of the upper middle class, right? So there used to be, like, if you were a baby artist who was just getting started and you could go out there and sell 50,000 records, it'd be like, wow, that's great. Okay, that's a great start, right? And then there were the people that everyone knew. Let's take a legacy artist like Bonnie Raitt, for example, who wasn't a superstar, but was selling consistently maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 or 300,000 units per year, right? And then there was the superstars, right? Then there was the Michael Jackson or it was the Eagles selling 30 million records or whoever it was, right? There was this sort of extraordinary circumstance. But most people lived in that development mode or they lived in that sort of hey, yeah, I know who Bonnie Raitt is, and Mm -hmm. yeah, and I I know who the talking heads are, and I know who uh, Todd Rundgren is, or whoever people from that era in the 80s and 90s. But that just changed. That started to vanish. And when I started working with independent artists here in Nashville, my question was, I, I just really don't know if there's a mechanism any longer for them to go beyond the concept of getting TV and film sync licenses and driving over to Raleigh Durham tonight to sell 12 t-shirts and right. play for 200 people. Right. I just don't know if there is another mechanism like beyond that like they have to jump from that all the way to this other big leap. Yeah, and
3: certainly with the great resignation, you've had folks saying I don't want to do that anymore. That work-life Absolutely. balance has shifted. I have a new understanding post-pandemic of what is valuable to me and Even if that's what I have to do, I'm not interested in it anymore.
1: Yeah. Oh, you're so right. And one of the problems with this current strike is that that sort of artist that I've just described, particularly here in Nashville and in Los Angeles, has been so dependent on the TV and film and ad licensing sync. So that's where, for listeners who don't know what that means, it means that every time you hear music on a television show, a music supervisor chose that music, right? They contacted us, say they contacted me directly or my publisher, and they licensed that music and they made a deal. They said, we think this music's worth $7,500, you know, or 3500 or if it was a movie trailer, maybe they think it's worth $100,000. So they make a deal. Well, with... Production gone away. There's nothing new being made that needs new music, right? So there's this whole group of people who are just sitting on their hands, like because that was a major part of their income. They really do have to go to Raleigh Durham tonight and get mm-hmm. right. whatever the door is on that 200 people who are willing to come see them sing their songs.
2: So then for the people who love music, Love musicians who are saying, is there a means in this day and age? Is there a means of being a better consumer, a better patron, a better supporter of artists in this situation?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's the mechanisms that we know, you know, whether it's Kickstarter or Patreon and others like that. But I think one thing that we could say maybe it would be helpful is to say it's great that you want to buy this physical product and support. And when you see the artist do that, like do a special vinyl release of a record that you loved 20 years ago or something, yeah, jump on it, you know, support them and buy it and be a part of that. But apart from that and sort of listening to your old vinyl, (laughs) your CDs, (laughs) your cassettes and your eight tracks, (laughs) you've got to get on board with streaming because we're not talking about just Spotify, right? Right. We're talking about, let's say there's 50 major streamers around the world. Mm-hmm. So we could get in the closet over there, you know, and pull out some royalty sheets and let you see how just how crazy it is, right? If they're collecting in over 150 countries. And so it may say popular song number 27, right? And it's 36 cents in Malaysia or whatever, right, (laughs) (laughs) that's going to happen on that sheet of paper. That's going to happen, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of times for someone like me who's been making music commercially for over 40 years. So I am dependent on those pennies, on those nickels and dimes. I'm depending on them adding up at the end of the quarter and them sending me a check. So Mm. I'm not sort of like dismissing that. Yeah. You know, it's not the world that I worked so hard for. Yeah. But I'm certainly not dismissing it because I know I can't get back to where, yeah. where I was. I can only try to improve the situation as it is, and that's why I am so behind this strike because I do believe they're working to improve things that are going to have a dramatic effect on
2: the music mm-hmm. business as well. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us yes, this week on the thank bulletin. You. All right, we will be right back.
5: Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the Queen of Christian Pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times best-selling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome back to The Bulletin. I'm Clarissa Mall. For millions of students, September signals back to school. But if you've got student debt... This month means back-to-school loans for you. This month, the U.S. government's respite plan for borrowers ended, and interest began accruing again. Starting next week, if you've got loans, you're going to need to make payments. There are all kinds of economic concerns related to student loan repayments resuming, Retailers are worried folks won't spend as much anymore. Housing experts are concerned that coupled with inflation, loans will keep folks from buying homes. And their concerns are reasonable. The average borrower has almost $29,000 in debt, and that's a lot. But today, I want us to dive a little bit deeper here and talk about why loans at all. What do student loans say about our priorities and values? What's an education really worth these days? And especially for us as believers, what, if any, are the spiritual implications that accompany carrying significant debt? To lend wisdom to this conversation, I'm grateful to have Dr. Jana Holliday here with us today. Jana is Dean of Students at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary and former Associate Dean of Students at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where she served for a decade. Jana teaches at Gordon-Conwell and ministers to students, many of whom carry student loans. Jana, thanks for joining us on The Bulletin.
6: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much.
3: So Jana, you know, talking about debt and money decisions can be super awkward, even when 43.5 million Americans are in the same boat with you. But it's that kind of transparency, I think, that's vital to helping us figure out how to solve the problem of student debt. So Do you mind me asking? You've been through a lot of school yourself. Did you take out loans to pay for your education?
6: Yeah, I have had several unique experiences in terms of how I've paid for my education. When I started my bachelor's degree, my parents and I had a conversation, and they very graciously offered to really significantly help me out paying for tuition and just all the fees associated with that. I worked part-time, you know, contributed in you know, as many ways as I was able to, but the lion's share was paid for by them. When I started thinking about my master's degree, I just didn't have the financial savvy to be able to figure out how to pay for this without loans. So that was my plan. I applied to schools, saw this astronomical number that I was going to have to pay, and just said, well, I guess I'll just have to do loans. I worked as well then during school, but graduated with some significant debt. And I remember just the anxiety and just the burden that that was as I was looking for jobs when I was nearing graduation and trying to figure out how in the world am I going to be able to pay this. I I had master's degrees from a seminary that were not super practical or translatable into a large paycheck after I graduated. So I did. I spent six years after I graduated working for a church, which obviously was not a ton of money. Most of that time working two jobs, just had this deep desire to want to pay back those loans. When that was finished, it was time for me to start thinking about a Ph.D., and I remember praying through that decision and really just telling the Lord, like, I don't want to do this if this is going to require me to spend 20 years of my life paying back the money for this. So could you please help me figure out how to do this better than before? And by truly the Lord's amazing grace, I got a job at Trinity. Trinity has a wonderful education benefit. So I was able to do my PhD for free. And just the difference that I had in graduating and having the sense of okay, I can go and do whatever, I I don't have to think about loans and just the burden that that is and feeling just the servitude to this loan repayment versus, you know, we all want servitude to Jesus more than anything else. And just the freedom that that offered me, I'm so grateful for. And I definitely don't take that for granted.
3: I think about your experience with your parents more than 20 years ago and them sitting down and plotting out a financial plan for college for you. And I think about myself with a daughter who's in senior in high school, and we're starting to make those decisions. And I feel like these are not the conversations that I had with my parents more than two decades ago. Do you sense in the student population now in the seminary and, and in higher education that something generationally has shifted an understanding of the value of education or just
6: how how it's going to be made possible? Oh, so much has shifted in my experience and just almost every area of life. I think maybe I would Start by thinking about our view of what an education gives to us. When I think about, you know, my dad, when he went to college, he could work over the summers and pay for his tuition easily.
3: I noticed, you know, looking at the statistics that fewer students are making the choice to go to college now than they were two-year Colleges as well as four-year colleges. Meanwhile, numbers over the last 24 to 36 months of students enrolling in trade programs has jumped significantly. Do you find that higher education is a hard sell when you think about the costs that are associated with it?
6: Higher education is becoming increasingly harder of a sell, in, in my experience. We have fewer students at my level in graduate schools signing up to finish to do a degree. And, yeah, I think that's changing how institutions are thinking about their role in society. I think that's changing how institutions are thinking about how they're run in general when the numbers aren't, you know, what they used to be. I think there probably should be a pretty significant upset in higher ed because of these questions, but that doesn't, in my opinion, need to be catastrophic. I think that can be healthy and healing, even if it is very unexpected and and just a big challenge.
3: Bob, so I've got a question for you because a decade ago, you were doing research around this and discovered this Catholic fund, uh, the Mater. Ecclesia Fund for Vocation that was doing something really transformative in this space with students and student loans. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, so they're actually still in business, and they're basically lay folks who decided, well, people in in the Catholic Church can't go to seminary or take up vocations, as they call them, because they have too much debt. And so they began to raise money to pay off student debt. What is interesting, I, I was just covering some Southern Baptists. One thing they do pretty interesting or well is seminary education. For their, If you're in a Southern Baptist, you go to one of their seminaries, the denomination pays those seminaries to educate their students. It's not the whole cost, but it's a significant part of the tuition. And I wonder if for seminaries, the decline of denominationalism has a kind of the side effect for them, that you don't have or a seminary that's this kind of standalone like Gordon, you know, how we train pastors. How do you train pastors if you don't have churches willing to pay for it when you used to have churches willing to underwrite that?
6: Yeah, I think Gordon-Conwell and other schools like us, one of our goals is to have students connect with individuals if their churches or denominations aren't able to be as supportive. Gordon-Conwell has a, a program where we kind of train students how to do that. I've noticed there's a lot of dependency on various foundations that you know we really rely on for our budgets yearly. But the not having the denominational support is absolutely a huge factor in our bottom line.
4: The other question I wonder, if you think about how you get people to talk about this, so there's a lot of question of debt forgiveness. How do you get people to talk about this? Because there is a feeling in some places of, well, you got this debt, you get out of it. It's like you fell in that hole, so sad for you, and not a sense of, okay, this is a problem. That we all are part of, and how do we fix this? Uh, there's a sense of well, it's your own problem, and you're just bad at finances. It's that kind of personal finance, avoid debt, sort of. Which all is great, right? Those are all good, important things, not to to run up more than you can spend. But we have a bunch of people, more often young, who took on debt, and they relied on institutions to say, "Hey, this was a good idea," and then they're still paying the cost. And I wonder if there's any way for colleges or seminaries to lead it, a discussion of this that talks about theology, that talks about values, but also talks about what happens when you found yourself in a problem and how do you deal with it? And it's a problem just to say, no, nah, that's too bad for you. We don't care.
6: Yeah. So we have uh, this partnership program that includes with it a requirement that students take a class where we talk about stuff like that, that you mentioned, Bob, and we want students to understand the complex dynamics of what's going on with loans and repayment, and it's just really important. I think another really helpful partner for seminaries has been the Association of Theological Schools. They've had an initiative they've worked on for at least the last 15 years helping seminaries working with students to lessen debt. 17% decrease in student debt has happened in the last 15 years, mostly because of ATS's influence and just seminaries recognizing that our graduates are crippled when they have debt, and this is affecting the kingdom of God. This is a kingdom issue. So we don't have the freedom to say, well, you've graduated. This isn't our problem anymore. This is about effectiveness in ministry, and that's what we want for our students and our our graduates. So they've been just a really wonderful partner in that over the last about 15 years.
3: I found it really compelling that the largest average individual debt are the folks who are 62 years and older? Their average balance is actually almost $50,000. So, you know, when we think about student debt as a problem for people in their 20s, we're way off because there are folks in our congregations who are much older who are still carrying debt with them. It used to be that moving into the trades was a very valuable endeavor, and we saw that we saw that shift over the years. But I think we're swinging back to a real interest and an understanding of the value of tradespeople, particularly after the pandemic, and our desperate need for essential workers. Do you think that there is a reawakening, perhaps, that's happening as we think about a more holistic way to address education, even in the midst of this $1.7 trillion worth of student in debt. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel here?
6: I hope so. I don't think we can go on much longer like this. There's just so many ripple implications from this, from, you know, people putting off buying homes, having kids, just doing so many things, let alone all the ministry implications. It is a very significant thing. We need to be very careful about the voices we're listening to, about the assumptions that we're making about, well, I just go to college because you know this is what somebody does i'm obviously a, a huge fan of education i do i do have a phd in education but i want people to make well reasoned wise choices that are following god's invitation to them for their lives rather than just doing what has normally always been done i think there's been some really wonderful work on the theology of vocation and workplace ministry and i think that's such an important way of saying Wherever you are, you can faithfully serve the Lord. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have a BA or an MA. Maybe that means you are in the trades and you are faithfully doing what God has invited you to do in your life. And and that's so beautiful to see.
3: I wonder, too, if a broadening understanding of what education means and the value of it in our society can come along a little bit more grace, knowing that there are so many people who are carrying heavy loads of debt right now aside from partisan disagreements about the actual government involvement in that, there seems to be opportunities to support those who are bearing a large burden like that. When you look at the church, do you see folks stepping forward in practical ways to destigmatize student loan debt and practically make a difference?
6: Yeah, I wish there were more in churches. There's some popular classes on budgeting, but I don't know that I've seen a lot of programs about really increasing that savvy, especially related to higher education. I had a student this summer who did a teaching project on, in his community. He was going to put on a class to help married couples basically grow their relational capital with each other, their relational skills, so that they could better talk about money and manage money. He's from a Latino church. His work was excellent. I would love to see more and more of that in all sorts of churches, just providing education. Maybe it's not a workshop on here's how to pay for college, but maybe it's some of those other skills that are needed of even as in a community, how do we talk about loans? How do we talk about all these financial literacy pieces so that we have financially savvy people in churches who are emotionally intelligent as well and can work through some of the shame that is often really present when people are talking about being in debt.
3: There's so much to think about here, Jana, and I'm so grateful for you joining us today on The Bulletin. We will be right back.
6: What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood.
2: A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world.
1: 6.30 a.m., we're we're in in our synagogue praying and sirens go off, and and they're going on and on.
2: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict.
1: When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much.
5: I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there.
2: This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. We are back from the break, and we are joined now by Ruth Haley Barton. Ruth is the author of several books, including Invitation to Solitude and Silence and Embracing Rhythms of Work and Rest. Ruth, welcome to the Bulletin.
7: Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
2: There's this trend on TikTok so I understand. I'm actually not on TikTok, mm-hmm. not because I'm too sanctified for social media. I'm too old for that one, I think <laughs> is the case. But in, in any case, there's this trend on social media right now. They're referring to it as silent walking. Mm-hmm. It originated with a video from an influencer who shared that a nutritionist had encouraged her to walk about 30 minutes a day instead of engaging in intense cardio. I got to be honest, it was kind of funny reading this story because it's like, man, we have this really incredible trend and innovation in the world, you're going to go for a walk someplace pretty without your phone and without other distractions. And it's kind of blown up. But it struck me as I read it today, you know, there's that, that great passage from the book of Jeremiah where he says, you know, look to the ancient paths where the good way is mm-hmm. and there you'll find rest. And here's something that is so simple and so ancient as... Go for a walk and be silent and alone with your thoughts in a beautiful place. And people are blown away by it. Mm -hmm. This is kind of something you've been talking about for a long, long time, though.
7: Yeah. In fact, it did make me giggle a little bit, too, because it used to be that there was no other kind of walking to do, right? (laughs) Except for (laughs) silent walking. So here we are and something that used to be so... Normal is now something that's exploding on social media. And I remember the first time that I saw this change. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous spring day here in the fall. And, you know, in Chicago, our winters are so miserable that a first spring day is like a wonder to behold. And everybody pours out of their houses. And I remember the first time I went for a walk, and I didn't have a phone with me, but the three people that I saw walking, one had a dog, one had a child in a stroller, and someone else was just walking by themselves, but all three of them were on their phones. And I thought, the world has changed. And not in a good way either.
2: (laughs) You've dedicated Mm -hmm. the better part of the last 20 years to working with leaders in particular and trying to help leaders come to healthier places, to quieter places in the Mm -hmm. soul, solitude being such a key part of that. I think for a lot of people... The idea of going somewhere without a phone and without distractions is kind of terrifying. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why that is and what it is in us that's afraid of solitude and silence?
7: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'm grateful to be in the generation that I'm in. I don't usually say that, but I can remember the day before we had it. And I think that helps. I think it helps to be able to remember a time before we even had the option of taking a phone on a walk, because you have a sense of the goodness of that. You know what difference it makes. You know how different it is to take a walk with a phone than to take a walk without a phone, which was your only option not so long ago. And so I do recognize this addictive nature of technology and the fact that being separated from our technology, does create terror and anxiety, like even for 10 minutes. Like if you can't find your phone for 10 minutes, there's literally anxiety that one feels and you can't think about anything else until you can find your phone. And I'm just glad to be able to remember a day when that wasn't true. I feel badly for the next generation who doesn't remember what it was like to not be so attached to your phone, to not have your phone and your work and the noise and the distraction, like literally strapped to your body in some cases. So it's very disturbing. And I do think that it affects our ability to to center down, as the Quakers would say, and Mm. what we mean by that, you know, center down and hear something inside yourself, or from our own Christian perspective, that place within us where God's Spirit witnesses with our spirits about who we really are, and many other true things as well. We're now not accustomed to centering down or going down into the deeper place where we can hear God and hear ourselves and hear the deeper dynamics, and there's a great loss in that.
3: Yeah, I think of that, Ruth, and I think about how unaccustomed we are to being outside in general. We spend very little time outdoors. We drive Mm -hmm. from the office back home. I mean, maybe the only outside time we have is time where we go to take out the trash or walk Mm -hmm. down to the end of the driveway to get the mail. And I wonder if there's something particularly unique about outside walking or outside meditative practices. Why can't I do this in the mall on a rainy day? What makes Mm -hmm. being outdoors so unique, do you think?
7: I think that's such a great observation because there is so much evidence that being in nature, being with trees, having the real ground under your feet rather than just the cement under your feet, hearing the sounds of birds, that there's something about nature that enlivens us in a way that nothing else does. And I think that God made it that way. (laughs) I do. And I think that choosing to be outside for some of these meditative moments gives us at least two or three more layers of goodness that God really does intend for us through nature, which, as we know, declares the glory of the Lord. I mean, nature shows us things about God. And so when we are in nature, which is God's creation, I think we are communing with God, too in a different way than when we're inside as you put it on an indoor track, you know or something like that. So I do think it's fascinating that we're coming back around to recognizing the enlivening benefits of being out in nature too as it has to do with our spirituality.
2: Bob, let me throw a question your way real quick. This trend, so there's a hashtag on TikTok, mm-hmm. silent walking trend. As of a couple of days ago it had 35 and a half million views. And there's a lot when You see people talking about this and some of the explainers that have been published about it. People are linking it to Zen Buddhist practices and mindfulness meditation and this kind of larger trend. I'm curious in your work as a religion reporter watching these things, what do you make of this kind of surge of interest in mindfulness meditation and mindfulness talk, mindfulness thinking?
4: Well, one thing that makes me fascinated is that it's a TikTok trend. Right, So you have the person walking. It's blown my mind that I can walk and not do anything. Look at my sunset while I'm on the phone telling you about my spiritual experience. So that everything is a automatic, even this spiritual experience is then turned into a digital experience and sent out. It's like the complete opposite of it. But there's this other part that people, I think... There is a weariness of being online all the time, being constantly bombarded, and never really stopping being just a person. And then the funny part of it is the kind of the way the world is now, is it takes the mindfulness app or the mindfulness trend and turns you immediately into something I can sell. Mm -hmm. But there's an interest in just silence. And I was at a big conference recently, and they asked me to do a meditation app. And I was like, no. No. Please don't ask me to do a meditation app, And it was like five minutes of sitting silently. Great. But I did it. I was like, oh, that's not so bad. Oh, this is okay. Like, there's a terror, but there's also like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, you remind yourself that this is okay. Actually, this is kind of nice. And it's better than the chaos.
3: One of the fears that a lot of Christians have about mindfulness is this sort of like emptying of the mind, right? Mm -hmm. That when I go for my silent walk, when I sit in silence, I'm supposed to empty myself. And there's a vulnerability there, or perhaps a spiritual vulnerability. But I love Thomas Merton's words when he says that he prays better by walking than by talking. And so I wonder... Ruth, do we need words at all? Do Mm -hmm. we need to fill that space that's quiet and silent? Is there something to be nervous about, or Mm -hmm. is it okay to just let the walking be the prayer?
7: Well, the answer to that is yes, for sure, because your body is actually praying, and our bodies were made to pray. When we think about our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, it means what is that? I mean, it means we were made to pray. Our bodies literally were made as a place of encounter with God. So, yes, the body definitely can pray without words on a walk. I'm also. Aware of a definition of solitude that I really love, that I think bears some pertinence to this conversation, and that is solitude being present to the one who's always present. And so we're not emptying. And I think that this is one of the biggest distinctions between Christian solitude and silence and Buddhist meditation is that we're not emptying ourselves. We're actually being present to the one who is always present with us. And I think that's just beautiful. So on a walk, you can do that, being present to the one who's always present with you. And you're adding this layer of being present to the one who's always present with us through nature, which the scriptures do, you know, are so clear that nature speaks to us of who God is. And so we're actually communing with with aspects of God in a walk and no words are necessary at all. It's about communing. And in a human relationship, we know what it's like to be able to be with somebody that we really love and are comfortable with. That is one of the biggest signs of comfort is that you can be together with that person without words. That shows Mm. you're really comfortable with each other If you can be with each other without words and just commune, And of course, we know that there are these moments in the human life where words don't make any difference at all, like nursing a baby or having, if you're a dad, the baby laying on your chest or lovemaking, friends sitting together in a companionable silence, that those are experiences of deep intimacy that have nothing to do with words. And so going for this kind of a silent walk is an opportunity for communing.
2: I keep thinking about with this trend, Charles Taylor has this category, this idea that he talks about called mutual display. And he says, you know, in this in a secular age where we're sort of drained of transcendence and longing for it and trying to find other ways to sort of connect with meaning and all of this. One of the things that emerges is that we form these identities, but we really only understand these identities by displaying them for other people and having them affirmed back to us. So for this silent walking trend, right? Literally, the hashtag is silent walking trend. <laughs> and, it's, and it's a hashtag on a social media. Like you, you know, pointed this out already, Bob, but it's a hashtag on a social media site where people go and do this and film themselves doing it and display it for other people to like and share and whatever you and do And then the TikTok. question
7: being, did it really happen if I don't put it out there?
2: So that's exactly where I was going because I, I actually <laughs> wanted to ask you that. Like when you think about the value of solitude and silence, and the practices, the traditional Christian contemplative practices. I mean, so much of in spiritual formation literature going back for 2,000 years, the whole idea Mm -hmm. of going to a prayer closet, washing your face so people don't know that you're fasting, Mm -hmm. not praying on the corners. I mean, this is all from the Sermon on the Mount. And when you think about contemplative practices in the Christian life today, how important do you think that particular element, that sort of doing it in secret, doing it Mm -hmm. before the Lord and not men, how, how much does that play into the way you you think about it today?
7: I think it's extremely important and more important because it's so hard to be hidden now. And you're talking about the practice of hiddenness, the practice of doing a few things in our lives that we don't allow other people to see that are very, very important, but they're not validated by other people witnessing them or affirming them or anything like that. And in the end, I think it also, that practice of hiddenness, Or solitude and silence, however you want to put it, is that it enables us to find the bedrock of our identity in God versus our identity being found by what response I get from out there, all the hearts and the likes and things like that. And of course, we know that there's an addictiveness to that, to the hearts and the likes and the dopamine hits and all of that. And so, this practice of hiddenness, our solitude and silence, helps us to find ourselves in God, you know, our lives hidden with Christ in God, to know ourselves as God knows us, and also to not be so addicted to our roles, to our activities, to our achievements, to all the ways that we shore up a sense of self. And I think that that's really very significant to any sort of authentic spiritual life is that we're not looking to the outside for our identity. Solitude and silence draws us into finding our identity in God, and that becomes the bedrock of our being. And we do whatever we do in the world from that place, but we're not seeking the validation of the world to make it real. And I think that's a very deep part of the spiritual journey right there, is to be willing to go to that place where there's the terror of not knowing who I am when nobody's affirming me or nobody's hearting or liking me. That's terror, right? Who Mm -hmm. am I when nobody's validating me externally? It is terrifying. But at the same time, it's so spiritually formative Mm -hmm. to find ourselves in God and to have our identity found in God versus what's going on in the exterior world. So, I I think these are more powerful now and more needed now simply because it's so much easier to live our lives superficially and externally focused.
2: I think the terror is such a great way to talk about it because if that displayed identity, if that performed identity that's affirmed by other people, if that's all we know of ourselves, Mm -hmm. then when something goes wrong in life, we suffer, we lose a job, we lose a community, whatever, what is there to fall back on? Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that you talk about as, I think, again, I'm not trying to read your book to everybody on, mm-hmm. on the show, but but I think you talk about this as well. Is there is this sort of like, the reason solitude and silence are this sort of foundational practice is because they're kind of the ground from which so much of the rest of the Christian life is able to take place. That identity formation is able to take place.
7: Well, and you didn't even mention diminishment, aging, and death, right? which will come to all of us. and We tend, we not, are... to avoid,
2: we tend right. not to talk about that. Right.
7: <laughs> I mean, but That's serious. a cheerful podcast. Thank you. I know, I know, I know. Always. But I'm telling you, if you are somebody who gets your whole identity from what's going on externally and then in the process of diminishment aging and death how much harder it is to lose your sense of identity because you don't have anything going on externally and that's a very spiritual part of the journey for us and i think solitude and silence prepares us for that because Mm. we still know who we are even when we're not doing things and achieving things and being productive and being hearted and liked we still know who we are because we're still in God. Wow. that gives, I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope for aging and, and that whole process because I do know who I am in God without all the other stuff. And so I know that that because of the practices of solitude and silence, I will be able to enter into that when it is my time.
4: I wonder if there's something to be applauded in people discovering these things. Yeah. Right? There's some ways you can critique this as, Displayed behavior. I mean, there are critiques, of, like TikTok has all kinds of critiques. There's something kind of refreshing to say, what did I discover? That if I shut off my phone and I move Mm -hmm. and I'm out in the world, I might discover something really interesting.
7: So there's the silent part of this trend, but there's also the walking part that is an in-the-body activity where you get a chance to feel yourself as a body. And one of the distinctions that I like to make sometimes is to say, we don't have bodies, we are bodies. Hmm. And when you are walking, you experience yourself as a body, so I love your, your focus on ex, ex, part of what we get to experience on a silent walk is this, the goodness of being a body, the fact that we can move like this and take in the, the presence of God through our senses, through the sun and the blue sky and the feeling of the earth under our feet, that those are experiences of intimacy with God that only come in and through our bodies. And this trend actually gets us in our bodies.
2: And I think as church leaders, we want to encourage Whatever little steps people are taking, for sure.
7: The other thing that I'm aware of, too, is that solitude and silence challenges us on levels. And, it, and if we could be familiar with those levels, it would help. So one of the things that I talk to folks about is that it challenges us culturally because there's nothing in our culture that supports it. Everything in our culture supports constant connectivity. It challenges us relationally because it's very unusual now to be inaccessible to To those people that we're in relationship with and they're actually offended, you know, if you're not right there to answer their text or to pick up their phone call. So it's going to challenge us relationally. We're going to have to work this out relationally and say, yeah, there will be a half an hour when I'm not available to you, and they might not like it, but you know you need it, and so that's what you're going to do. It challenges us psychologically, and Dallas Willard talks about the fact that silence frightens us because it casts us upon the stark realities of our life. It reminds us of death. It reminds us of being with God and God alone, and what happens if there's very little between? me and God you know so it challenges us psychologically because now rather than distracting ourselves from all of our issues our sadness our loneliness our resentments our angers now we're present with it there's no buffer you know because we're not busy I think many of us don't realize how much we use our busyness to distract ourselves from what's really happening at the soul level and then surprisingly I also think solitude and silence challenges us spiritually I think that's what Psalm 46 is indicating, be still and know that I am God. Well, the evil one knows that if we know God experientially at that level, if we have a real encounter with God, that God will, will take his rightful place on the throne of our lives again, and the evil one will be unseated. So I actually think there are spiritual dynamics that come against our attempts to enter into solitude and silence. So we have to know that the invitation to solitude and silence is very challenging on all levels of our being. So it's no surprise then that it's difficult. And as we've said, sometimes terrifying, but nature does support us. I think maybe that's another thing that's powerful is that nature kind of supports us in doing this thing that is very challenging for us on so many levels. Well, i So
2: enjoyed this conversation, Ruth. Thank you so much for joining us this week on The Bulletin. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Clarissa. Great to be with you guys again this week. And thanks to all of you for listening. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producers are Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Our associate producer is Azure Phelps. Editing and mixing by TJ Hester. Music by Dan Phelps. Show design by Brian Todd. Graphic design by Amy Jones. Social media by Kate Luckett.
0: Every day,